Well, good morning. This uh, day we have been thinking often in our music and uh, through the ministry moment about the gospel. And I want to continue our thoughts along that same line, but I want for us uh, to think about the gospel in terms of this. When the gospel penetrates your heart, it changes you as a person, but the gospel also changes us as a group of people. And so that's what I want for us to look at this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the group dynamics. What happens to us in a group as the body of Christ when the gospel changes us? From an outside perspective, we are a very unlikely gathering of people. When you look around this room, you see people that uh, on the surface you share very little in common. And yet here we are gathered together as a church. So why is it that people of all ages and backgrounds and skin tones can gather and experience unity and harmony? Why do we have a bond that is greatly disproportionate to the amount of time that we spend together? Why is it that rich and old, young and poor, male and female can join hands and work and serve together and accomplish something great to advance the gospel? Why is it that when we yield ourselves to God, he is able to accomplish through us far more than the accumulated total of our abilities and talents would account for? The answer is that God has done something in us as a group. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul explains this as he writes this. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is this mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Timothy was a young pastor, and the Apostle Paul left him behind in the city of Ephesus to lead the church there. And as Timothy's mentor, Paul is keeping tabs on him, and he writes to him with instructions and doctrine to help him and encourage him. And in these verses, Paul comes to the heart of this letter, and he's explaining to Timothy why it is that he's taken the time to write. And Paul ties his purpose in writing this letter, to behavior in the sense that he's telling Timothy certain things so that Timothy can tell the church how to behave. And that's really what 1 Timothy is all about, telling the church how to behave. There is a way that Christians are supposed to act and live. But we're not involved in a merely external exercise of trying to make ourselves look good to the world and to impress each other with our efforts at godliness. Our behavior as Christians is rooted in who we are in Christ. And in this passage, Paul presents some important information regarding our true identity as believers and specifically who we are 
as a group. So what does it mean to be part of the body of Christ? In verse 15, Paul says, if I delay, he wants for us to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And this morning, I want for us to look at that little word, in. What is it that we are in? Who are we as believers and especially as a group? And the Apostle Paul is going to give us four realities that are true of us. Number one, God makes us into a household. And he says that in verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house or household of God. The phrase house or household of God really has two meanings. In one sense, the house of God is God's dwelling place. In the Old Testament, God commanded that a tabernacle be built that would house the Ark of the Covenant and would be God's dwelling or house on earth. And that was later replaced with the temple in Jerusalem. But with the cross of Christ, things change. God does not live in a temple made by hands. God's word tells us that God dwells in us. So the phrase house of God is a term of location. It means that we are where God lives. But a second meaning of this term describes our relationship with each other. We are the household of God in the sense that we are a family. We are brothers and sisters adopted by God and bound together in relationship in a household. God takes people with a mixture of talents and gifts, people from every tongue and tribe, people of both genders, people of all ages, people of different hues, and from them he forms a family. And we are to function as a godly family. Our obligation then becomes to live in such a way that the body of Christ becomes a place of warmth and refuge. The church exemplifies acceptance and love and encouragement and protection of one another as the household of God. We care for one another. We're called to love one another. God makes us into a household. Secondly, God gives us life. In verse 15, he goes on to describe the church. He says, which is the church of the living God? We are the church of the living God in contrast to all of the dead gods that people are tempted to pursue. As believers, we are distinct from every other group. There is no entity other than believers who are truly and eternally alive. In fact, the life that believers share transcends even the human family, unless the members of your human family are also believers. The true body of Christ will spend eternity together because we are eternally alive. As the church of the living God, we serve a God who is alive with the knowledge that the living God makes us alive. God's word says that at salvation, hearts of stone become hearts of flesh, Ezekiel 36. Salvation is the reality of something that was dead being brought to life. And so our worship and service for God 
is of supreme importance to us because we know that he is the true and living God. Our worship and service for God is possible because the living God gives us life. And so we serve God in the power of God. We're not bound to the limitations of our own abilities. We are the church of the living God, and we are called to reflect his presence and power on the earth and not our own. God makes us into a household. God gives us life and power. Number three, God gives us a purpose. As the people of God, we are, according to verse 15, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Truth, of course, is that which corresponds to reality. So God and his word are truth. And Paul is describing our relationship to the truth by using the image of a building. So, of course, we are recipients of the truth of God and his gospel. The truth has changed us. The truth has transformed us. But Paul says that we as a group have an active role when it comes to the truth. And our role is that of pillar and buttress. Pillars really have more than one function. Pillars oftentimes hold things up. And that partially describes our relationship with the truth. We hold it up. The truth is not something that we hide. The truth is not something that if you know the right handshake, we'll tell it to you. It's not our secret. We hold up the truth for all to see and be drawn to. And this is particularly the meaning of the word buttress that Paul uses there. A buttress really is a prop or a support. A buttress holds up walls and keeps the structure together, prevents walls from giving way, causing the building to collapse. We display the truth and hold up the truth. We teach the truth and we guard the truth. But pillars have another function. Sometimes a pillar is not even connected to anything. Remember in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel was fleeing their bondage in Egypt. They were wandering and at night God would lead them with a pillar of fire. That pillar wasn't holding anything up. It wasn't connected to anything. Its purpose was to be seen and followed. And sometimes the purpose of a pillar is to be seen. Pillars serve the function of bringing beauty to the structure. When you walk around our campus, every one of our entryways here has these cream-colored, beautiful columns and pillars. And the part that you see isn't actually doing anything. Inside of those are steel posts that are holding up the structure. The pillars that you see are there to increase the beauty of our facility, which in turn reflects on the glory of God. The word pillar brings a different image to your mind than does the word post. A post is functional. A pillar is both functional and beautiful or decorative. And so a purpose of the body of Christ is to take the word of God, take the truth of God, and make it beautiful. Someone can pick up the Bible, they can read the truth, and the power of God's word can transform them. We as the body of Christ have the privilege of taking that truth and living it out and thus making God and his word beautiful. 
Now, of course, oftentimes the truth, no matter how beautifully presented, is offensive. And so our focus is not necessarily on being appealing to the world. What appeals to the world is often at odds with the truth of God. Our focus, rather, is on truth and displaying the truth in a way that is beautiful to God. So part of our purpose as the people of God is to hold up the truth in a way that is beautiful and pleasing to God for all the world to see. We are people of truth. Active not only in the pursuit of truth, but also in the display and the support of truth. And so we lift it up, we draw attention to truth, even as we're being transformed by it. Remembering, of course, that we are not the creators of truth. We don't determine what the truth is. We display what God has revealed the truth to be. And Paul, in his next point, reminds us of that very fact, that we do not create the truth. Only God does. God makes us into a household. God gives us life and vitality. God gives the church its purpose. And number four, God unites us with a confession. Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up, in glory. Now, in verse 16, mystery does not mean mysterious or secret. It simply refers to something that is not understood until and unless it is revealed. It's not obvious. So we think of the gospel as a mystery in the sense that you don't come to it by any other means than God revealing it to us in his word. The word in verse 16 translated, we confess, literally means by confession of all or by common confession. And the we, of course, refers to all believers. So what Paul is saying is that this confession is something that all true believers believe. There is a minimum body of truth that a person believes in order to be included in the household of God. We may have some theological differences, but all true Christians are united around a fixed core of truth. And Paul summarizes that truth with these six statements. Some people think Paul is actually quoting the lines to a song of his day. But look at the points in verse 16 again. Number one, Jesus appeared in a body. Jesus became a person lived in a body of flesh and bone, Hebrews 5, 7. And in that body, he bore our sins as the Father crushed and killed him in our place, Isaiah 53, 5. Number two, he was vindicated by the Spirit. To be vindicated simply means to be revealed to be right. And so the ministry of Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit of God and by God the Father. Mark 1, 9 through 11. An obvious expression of vindication is that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 1, 4. 
Number three, he was seen by angels. And it's tougher to know what Paul's referring to, but throughout the Gospels, angels appear, giving testimony about Jesus and lending credibility to the divinity and authority of Jesus. Angels are involved in announcing the birth and arrival of him in in Luke chapter 2. Angels minister to Jesus after his temptation in Mark 1. Angels minister to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. Angels are witnesses to the resurrection in Matthew 28. And I think the point that Paul's trying to make is that there are credible witnesses to the truth claims of Christ. The word angel simply means messenger. God gave us reliable messengers. He gave us human messengers as well in the form of the men who wrote the Bible for us on his behalf. Number four, Paul says that he was announced to the nations. Jesus commanded that the gospel be proclaimed throughout the world in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1.8. And that really is what the miracle at Pentecost was all about in Acts chapter 2. People from all different languages came there in Jerusalem and, hear, and heard the gospel preached and they heard it in their own tongue. Paul's reminding us that the gospel is for the nations. There are no borders or barriers in the body of Christ. The gospel is for everyone. There is not an Asian way to be saved and a European way to be saved. There is not an Arab gospel and an African gospel. There are not many paths to God. There is one gospel... And the gospel is for the nations, John 14, 6. Number five, Paul says that he was believed on in the world. Belief is the proper response and the only acceptable response to the message of the gospel. Saving belief or saving faith involves three things. Number one, recognizing the claims of the gospel, simply understanding what it says. Number two, acknowledging the truthfulness of the gospel's claims and that those claims correspond directly to your need. And then number three, a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ who by virtue of his death provides the only sufficient sacrifice for your sin and has the rightful claim as king over you. And number six, Paul says, Jesus was taken up into heaven. Jesus is right now at the right hand of God, Colossians 3, 1, and an eternal home in heaven awaits all believers. There is more at stake in this life than this life. So these things, these six things are not exhaustive, and I don't think Paul intended them to be. He's simply trying to communicate to us that there is a core body of truth that we unite around. And it includes Jesus became flesh and died for our sins. Jesus came back to life in a victorious resurrection. Messengers have seen and testified and written truth about Jesus. The gospel is the message for the nations. Belief is the only appropriate response. And there is an afterlife in heaven or hell for all people. Every one of us believes more than that. None of us who are Christians believes less than that. We are united around our beliefs. As believers, 
We share divine relationship as a family. We share true life, eternal life. We share a clear purpose in representing the truth, and we share a unified confession. And this morning, I suggest that these realities are supposed to be expressed in the way we live. They are personally expressed as we live godly lifestyles as individuals, but they are corporately expressed as we live life together in the context of the church. The way we apply a passage like this, I think, is that we commit to live in a way that lines up with what God says is true of us. We are part of a household, so we must pursue relationship. We pursue an intimate relationship with God our Father, and we pursue relationship with our brothers and sisters here. We live like a godly family because that's how God designed us to live. We live in harmony with each other because we are brothers in a family. And when we have conflict, we resolve it in ways that honor God. We operate in an atmosphere of love and trust. And when one of us stumbles, we stop and help because we are the household of God. Our relationship to each other and to God is defined by the bond that God has created in making us a family. We are the church of the living God, and so we practice living faith. Our worship of him should be authentic and passionate because there is a living God who really is the audience of our praise. Our ministry and service should be accomplished in the power of God and not limited to our own efforts. We allow God to work through us. And all that we do should bring glory to the living God. We are called to reflect his presence here on earth. We are not the church of us. We are the church of the living God, and our only desire should be that people see him. We are the pillar and buttress of truth, so we purpose to display and support God's truth. We pursue truth above all else, and we support, uphold, and defend the truth of God against attack. God has entrusted his truth to us, and so we seek to steward it well. We make the truth of God and the reality of God's presence in our life beautiful to God, which in turn will be beautiful to those whom God is drawing to himself. We unite around a common confession, and so we do not yield any essential ground regarding our core beliefs Or the gospel. We lovingly yet boldly proclaim the gospel and testify to the world that there is no salvation anywhere else apart from Christ. So, how can we think about this personally? What is the one thing that you can do this week? As you have time to reflect, I want to just go through some questions with you that maybe will be helpful. As the household of God, we are knit together in love. So what step can you take this week to make this assembly more of a family? Is it time to invite someone over to your home and get to know them better? Do you know of a person here who is in need of your help? Are you here primarily as a spectator? And is it time to join this church family and get involved in ministry? Is there someone in this assembly with whom you have conflict? 
And can you be the first one to move toward resolution? As the church of the living God, we share true life and are powered by a God who is alive. So how much of what you do is really fueled by your own abilities instead of by the living God? Are you spending adequate time in prayer and study and meditation, talking to and hearing from the God who is alive? As the pillar and buttress of truth, we share a common purpose, to uphold and proclaim the truth. So are there areas in your life where you have compromised the truth because when you were asked a question, the truth was too hard to say? Is there an area in your life that God would consider ugly instead of beautiful? And if it were known, it would bring shame on your king. Guys, when you go to work tomorrow, will your faith be the best kept office secret or will truth be on display? Will you sign up to go through an EE class? As owners of a common confession, we unite around the gospel which saved us and which we are commanded to proclaim. So how committed are you to proclaiming the gospel? Are there people in your life with whom you have never shared the gospel? Now today I've been talking to Christians, but some of you likely have no idea if you're saved or you have doubts whether you're saved or you know for certain that you're not. And I encourage you to consider the claims of the gospel. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to get a hold of one or we can give you one and you need to read the gospel of John and see what Jesus says. Read for yourself the good news that God wants you to be forgiven from your sins. Please know and let us know that we want to help you. And if there are ways that we can help you, we would love to do that. You can call the church and make an appointment for someone to talk to you. We can even come to your house and talk to you there. Jesus is the answer to your spiritual need. And you find him in his word. But we would love to help point the way. Brothers and sisters, who are we? We are the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, and great indeed is our common confession. Our Father, we are reminded today throughout this entire hour, through the music and the video and the, the, all aspects of it, how, how grateful we are of the gospel of Christ. And so we thank you, Father, that you made it possible that we could be reconciled with you. And, and my guess is that mo- for most of us here in this room, that is true. And so we express our praise and gratitude to you that you have saved us. And as you did that, you changed and transformed us, but you also brought us into something great. You made us part of the body of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to function as the true body of Christ, that we will live like a household, that we will rally around our pursuit and passion for truth, and that we will uphold the gospel and proclaim the gospel boldly as we live life together as a church. I also pray, Father, for those uh, who are not saved and are not a part of your household yet. I pray, Father, that today might be the day where you, through the power of your word, penetrate their heart, bring their heart to life, and give them faith to believe. 
That is our prayer. We love you and we are grateful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all very much. Thank you.